What's happening, friends? Brian Allman here with another episode of What's Happening, Gem State. I have a great show for you today. I'm going to look at what's going on with some of our new elected officials, the need for accountability in our society, and some of the basic reasons why election integrity is so important. By the way, if you're on Telegram, then you can follow the whole What's Happening family at t.me slash whidaho. While you're there, subscribe to my channel, t.me slash Brian where I post my work as well as random, interesting, or amusing things that I come across throughout the day. Before I go further, I want to shout out today's first sponsor. At J&O Realty, they understand that the process of buying or selling a home is more than just a transaction. It's a life-changing experience. Their philosophy is simple. Clients come first. They pledge to be in constant communication with their clients, keeping them fully informed throughout the entire buying or selling process. They believe that if you're not left with an amazing experience, they have not done their job. They don't measure success through achievements or awards, but through the satisfaction of their clients. With 10 years of experience, Cassandra Henry is your Idaho Realty Girl. Contact her at 208-982-0013 or find them on the web at idaho-realty-girl.com. I want to thank Cassandra and her team for sponsoring What's Happening Gem State. If you follow some of our conservative legislators on social media, you will have noticed that they've been on an adventure lately. Senators-elect Tammy Nichols, Scott Herndon, Brian Lenny, Chris Trakel, and quite a few other senators and representatives visited the two hubs of power in our country, Washington, D.C. and Florida, to prepare for the upcoming session. Between pictures at the Capitol and some downtime at Universal Studios, our conservative rock stars met with pro-liberty legislators and activists from across the country. At the Hazlitt Summit, they heard from Corey DeAngelis, perhaps the most prominent voice for school choice and money following the student rather than the system. He was the driving force behind the bill passed in Arizona this year that will allow all families, rich or poor, to escape the failing public school system. I'm looking forward to seeing what our legislature does in that arena and more in the upcoming session. I am happy to see our new legislators taking the opportunity to learn and to network like this. Our opponents have massive organizations that promote moderate or left-wing causes in every state, so we need to take advantage of the same thing for the cause of liberty. I appreciate our legislators for taking the opportunity to build these connections with conservative legislators in other states, because only by working together will we be able to counterbalance the federal government, woke corporations, and the massive lobby groups and PACs that are trying to erase our freedoms. It's also imperative for our liberty legislators to stand together. The establishment has grown very adept at co-opting new representatives and senators. Brian Lenny shared a quote on Twitter from Colorado State Senator Ted Harvey that said, quote, I have never seen one elected moderate become more conservative, but have seen countless conservatives who enter the House become more moderate. End quote. I pray that this does not happen to our new freshman class. We need boldness in Boise to confront the problems we face today, as well as prepare for the storms to come. In other news, our new Attorney General Raul Labrador has begun transitioning into his new office. He announced two high-profile staff hires last week, selecting David Dewhurst as Deputy Attorney General and Theo Wold as Solicitor General. 
Mr. Dewhurst has served in many roles throughout the years, working in President Trump's Department of Commerce in 2018 before serving as Solicitor General of Montana in 2021. Mr. Wold also served in the Trump administration, advising the President directly regarding domestic policy. He and his wife, Megan, who was also an attorney who clerked for Justice Samuel Alito, they came to Idaho and immediately hit the ground running in their work to defend liberty here. I don't know Mr. Dewhurst, but I have met Theo Wold several times and have been extremely impressed with his knowledge, his oratory, his zeal, and his ability to get things done. He's going to be a great asset to our state for many years to come. Creating an office of Solicitor General is something that Labrador promised on the campaign trail. The job involves defending the laws of the state by directly arguing for them in court. The officeholder is basically the state's on-the-ground lawyer. There is a federal Solicitor General who serves in the Department of Justice under the President. His or her job is to argue the government's position at the Supreme Court. Bringing that office to Idaho should prove advantageous for the cause of liberty, enabling Raul Labrador and his team to more effectively defend state law against an increasingly tyrannical federal government. I am excited to see what Raul, Theo, and their team do in the next four years. I hope to see you at the Capitol this session. Our elected leaders need our support and encouragement when they're doing what we want, and they need solid constructive criticism when they go astray. Letters, emails, and phone calls are great, but showing up in person is a special privilege, one of the great privileges of living in a republic, and we should take advantage of it. Be ready to drop in on a morning committee meeting and share your own perspective during public testimony. My friends at the Idaho Freedom Foundation are hosting a two-hour online seminar called Legislature 101 on December 8th. This should be a great opportunity to learn the basics of how things work in Boise and how you can take part to help advance a conservative agenda. Dustin Hurst, VP of the IFF, said, quote, Corporate interests employ an army of lobbyists at the Capitol, promoting their big businesses' agenda. On the other side are regular Idahoans who just want to keep Idaho free and prosperous. Legislature 101 is a critical tool in equipping Idahoans to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the likes of Iaki and win. End quote. I signed up, and so should you. I look forward to seeing you online. One of the biggest issues today that faces our states and our legislatures is the so-called Great Reset. I have a series of posts over at my Substack, gemstate.substack.com, that look at the different facets of this social upheaval. Critical race theory, queer theory, diversity, equity, inclusion, social emotional learning, ESG, and even modern monetary theory and digital currencies are all ways in which powerful unelected oligarchs are using to transform our world into something new. Of these, ESG might be the most pressing concern for our elected officials. Massive financial firms such as Vanguard and BlackRock are using their influence to force large and small companies to adopt a progressive and even socialist worldview. The end result is going to be a Chinese-style social credit system where your very thoughts could condemn you to being shut out of the market and the public square. I don't believe that any single state can stop this oncoming tide. These forces are simply too powerful. But if we work together with other red states, then we might stand a chance of preserving our freedoms. I've been gratified to see our legislators, like my own district, Senator Scott Groh, and state officials like State Treasurer Julie Ellsworth, taking this threat seriously. 
Expect to see some bills this session that attempt to curtail ESG, and remember to encourage our elected officials to pass them. My name is Brian Ullman, and this is What's Happening, Gem State. Are you interested in sponsoring What's Happening, Gem State? Contact me at brian.allman at proton.me, and we can work out a deal. I would love to shout out your business on this platform. Welcome back to What's Happening Gem State. I'm your host, Brian Ullman. In the wake of the 2022 midterm elections, many people are pointing fingers and trying to figure out who to blame for the Republicans falling short of expectations. In last week's episode, I suggested that Mick leadership, Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy, and Ronna McDaniel, should face some consequences. Since then, McCarthy won a solid election to remain the leader of the House Republicans, though he fell short of the threshold he needs to win the speakership when the new session begins. Of the three, I think McCarthy is probably the most amenable to the conservative movement. He just vowed to remove Ilan Omar from the House Foreign Affairs Committee and Adam Schiff from the House Intelligence Committee, so he's off to a great start, and I'll keep an open mind. Mitch McConnell's re-election as Senate Minority Leader is less defensible. He literally had one job, retake the Senate for the Republicans, and he utterly failed. He diverted millions of dollars in campaign cash to Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, who, because of their new jungle election system, faced a fellow Republican. McConnell supported establishment candidates throughout the primaries, sending trucks full of money to stop J.D. Vance, Blake Masters, and other Trump-endorsed America First warriors. In any other job, failure means firing. An NFL coach who consistently delivers losing seasons does not get to keep his job. But politics is a field that's not based upon results, but upon patronage. Mitch McConnell has spent his career building alliances and trading favors, and this is the moment when those favors came due. The same paradigm seems to be true with regards to Ronna McDaniel, the chairwoman of the Republican National Committee. By all accounts, McDaniel, who is Mitt Romney's niece, don't forget, has been a failure. Since taking over the RNC in 2017, she's overseen the loss of the House, the loss of the Senate, and the loss of the White House. Republicans did retake the House this year, but by a far, far smaller margin than most expected or desired. Her messaging has been awful as well. The official GOP Twitter account lauded Republican commitments to LGBTQ rights and complained that Biden's economy was disproportionately forcing women out of the workforce. Lee Zeldin of New York, who lost his race for governor, but nevertheless helped Republicans regain several seats in the state legislature and congressional delegation, is considering a challenge to McDaniel's leadership at the time of this recording. But in response, a hundred RNC delegates circulated an open letter to McDaniel praising her record. Included in the signatories of this letter were Idaho's own state committee man and state committee woman, Damon Watkins and Cindy Sidaway. The letter says, quote, Under your leadership, the Republican National Committee has become a stronger and more effective force for our cause by investing in all 56 states and territories to expand our connection to and engagement with grassroots voters, opening 38 community centers to embrace communities that share our values and love of country but did not support or feel welcomed by the Republican Party, tirelessly working for the necessary fundraising, converting the RNC into an aggressive and effective advocate for election integrity by engaging in over 80 lawsuits and achieving dozens of wins, cutting ties once and for all with the biased Committee on Presidential Debates to seek a fair platform for our candidates to debate, 
and ongoing investments in data, digital, and in a permanent ground game in key locations around the country. How do I read this? How do you? I see it as damning with faint praise. Notice that none of these bullet points include the all-important metric of victory. Is this the result of a generation that always got participation trophies in childhood? You know, we see the same paradigm at work at Twitter lately. Elon Musk purchased the company and immediately began cleaning house, firing or laying off the deadweight that it accumulated over the years. You see, Twitter followed the same path as most startups, beginning with a handful of highly motivated coders and engineers working 20-hour days for little pay and ending up as a haven for lazy people who do very little work but enjoy a very posh environment and six-figure salaries. In this, they resemble the life cycle of empires, don't they? America began as some rugged frontiersmen fighting a desperate war against the greatest military power on Earth. And today, we provide millions of government employees and NGO staff with extremely comfortable sinecures. The worst part is that these people, whether they work for the government or for Twitter, they think they're important. They think they're essential. A while back, a woman posted a video on TikTok sharing what she called a day in the life of a Twitter employee. She shared her forays into the fancy cafeteria, her time in the meditation chambers, and high-level strategy meetings with other supposedly hard-working employees. And she capped it off with a visit to the wine bar. Something missing from this montage was anything resembling actual work. You see, these are the sorts of people who told laid-off coal miners to learn to code. When Elon Musk started letting these deadweights go, they freaked out, taking to Twitter, ironically, as well as to the pages of mainstream media, to decry Musk's heavy-handed leadership. Left-wing media posted endless stories about the imminent demise of Twitter, as these useless former employees spread the word that the platform would not survive without them. Yet it remains. Well, they are gone. Perhaps what scares the media the most is the demonstration that 75% of the workforce at big tech is completely useless. What if Google and Facebook come to the same realization? What if the federal government learns from this as well? Goodbye, sinecures. Yoel Roth, who led Twitter's Orwellian trust and safety team, left the company and wrote a pathetic op-ed in the New York Times about Twitter's supposedly uncertain future. The same Yoel Roth had spent his tenure censoring conservatives and calling Trump and his supporters Nazis, so take his opinions with a massive grain of salt. Yet his duties as head of trust and safety didn't seem to extend to protecting children from exploitation. The use of Twitter to distribute child sexual abuse materials was an open secret, but nobody seemed to be able to stop it. That is, until Elon Musk took over. According to journalist Eliza Blue, a survivor of human trafficking and an advocate for victims of exploitation, there were three hashtags consistently used by pedophiles to share child pornography on Twitter. But the company did little to shut them down. Just days after Musk's acquisition, all three have been terminated. It makes you wonder about the priorities of people like Yoel Roth and Vijaya Gada, who used any pretext to ban conservatives from the platform, but could not seem to police the horrific things happening in their own backyard. I think it's time to bring accountability back to America. If we are to have any hope of saving our country, it must start by holding people to account. We must demand competence, even excellence, in our leaders, our employees, and most of all, ourselves. My name is Brian Ullman, and this is What's Happening, Gem State. As a reminder, you can support me directly by subscribing to the Gem State Substack. As a free subscriber, you receive every post, about three per week, in your inbox. As a paid subscriber, 
you help me make the time to create content that I hope is informative and inspirational. I really appreciate everyone who subscribes, everyone who shares my work. It really means a lot to me. So go to gemstate.substack.com to subscribe today. Welcome back to What's Happening Gem State. I'm your host, Brian Ullman. Succession of authority is one of the most important facets of any society. Everyone must accept whatever method of succession is involved, lest every transfer of power devolve into civil war. It does not matter what the method of succession is, so long as everyone agrees to respect it. In England, before the Norman Conquest, a thousand years ago, succession was generally from father to son, but it wasn't automatic. The Watanagamut was a council composed of the eldest and most powerful men of the kingdom, and it had the authority to elect the king, usually elected the previous king's son or someone in his family. When King Edward the Confessor died in 1066, Duke William of Normandy attempted to claim the throne by virtue of some of his ancestry, as well as vows allegedly made by his chief rival, Duke Harold Godwinson of Wessex. However, the Witan chose Harold instead, for one reason, because Harold was actually an Englishman. Duke William, of course, invaded and conquered England, which shows that victory with arms will always trump the rule of law. Inter arma enum silent legis, as the Romans used to say. After the Norman conquest, England adopted the European tradition of absolute primogeniture. The eldest son of the king inherited the kingdom no matter what. William actually bequeathed his primary title of Normandy to his eldest son Robert, while England, which was still considered to be a backwater at the time, went to his second son, William Rufus. This did not stop Robert and Rufus from going to war with each other to claim the other's territory, which demonstrates the need for a solid and accepted plan of succession. A major test of this system came in the 12th century when King Henry I's only son, William Adelin, died while crossing the English Channel. Henry made his barons swear to support his daughter, Matilda, but England had never had a ruling queen. This was something novel, something uncertain. After Henry's death, the barons and the church decided to support his nephew, Stephen, instead. Matilda, expecting to rule the kingdom, raised an army and invaded to claim what she believed was her right. The decades of constant civil war that followed were known as the Anarchy. Men said that Christ and his saints were asleep during this awful time. When our founders created this country 250 years ago, they recognized the need for a solid and accepted way to transfer power. The Constitution explicitly establishes the methods for presidential and congressional elections. These methods have been subtly altered by constitutional amendment, but they're still basically the same. To select a president, each state elects a slate of electors, while representatives and senators are elected by a majority of voters in their district or state. The legitimacy of a Republican form of government rests upon the consent of the losers. When a presidential candidate or party loses an election, they must be able to accept that this is the will of the people, and they will agree to abide by the results so as to allow the system to continue. In the year 1800, Vice President Thomas Jefferson defeated President John Adams. It was a precarious moment, the first time that the president in power was denied re-election. John Adams, though understandably stung by this result, packed his bags and went home to his farm in Massachusetts. The system worked. In 1824, General Andrew Jackson of Tennessee ran as a populist against the established party structure. 
A four-way election failed to result in anyone receiving a majority of electoral votes. So according to the Constitution, the House of Representatives chose from among the top three candidates. Speaker of the House Henry Clay, who came in fourth, threw his support behind the second-place candidate John Quincy Adams. President Adams then appointed Clay Secretary of State, a position that had, up until then, been a stepping stone to the presidency itself. Andrew Jackson was furious. He had received the most electoral votes, but had been denied the presidency by what he called a corrupt bargain. But he didn't raise an army and march on Washington. Rather, he spent the next four years on the stump, condemning the corrupt bargain and appealing directly to the people. Four years later, he was overwhelmingly elected president, and then to a second term in 1832. The system worked. Even in 1860, the system worked. Abraham Lincoln won the election after the Democrat vote was split between three candidates. Southern states, again, rather than marching on Washington and attempting to undo the election, simply decided to take their ball and go home. They seceded from the Union, believing that their participation in the system was voluntary. Lincoln, of course, disagreed, and the resulting war would kill 600,000 American soldiers, but the problem wasn't the election system. Even as late as the year 2000, the system was working. The election between Vice President Al Gore and Texas Governor George W. Bush came down to less than a thousand votes in Florida. Both sides sued to make sure that they won the outcome of the recounts. And the Supreme Court ultimately decided that, contrary to the Gore team's plan, any hand recount would have to include the whole state, not just the blue counties of Miami-Dade and Broward, and that Florida had to submit their electoral votes by the legal deadline. George W. Bush was therefore duly elected and inaugurated. That didn't stop Democrats from claiming that the election had been stolen, but to his credit, Al Gore did not raise an army and march on Washington. If you listen to mainstream media, you might believe that 2020 was the first time a candidate ever disputed the results of an election. But those media outlets conveniently forget about 2016. In fact, Democrats have not accepted a Republican presidential victory since George H.W. Bush in 1988. Donald Trump won a surprising victory, eking out wins in the swing states of Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. While it appeared that Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama accepted these results and accepted the peaceful transfer of power, in reality, they were hatching a plan to handicap the incoming president. When Donald Trump was inaugurated in January of 2017, President Barack Obama sat nearby, as is tradition. What appeared to be the usual peaceful transfer of power was actually cover for a secret coup that had already been set in motion. Nobody knew at the time that Obama had been surreptitiously working with the FBI and the Justice Department to spy on the campaign and transition team of President-elect Trump. Nobody knew that Obama, Susan Rice, Sally Yates, James Comey, Peter Sturzak, Lisa Page, and even then-Vice President Joe Biden were all involved in a plot to wiretap the Trump campaign, and to fabricate evidence that they were colluding with Russia to steal the election and subvert American democracy. This conspiracy makes President Nixon's cover-up of the Watergate burglary look petty by comparison. While not quite on the level of using the military to prevent an opposing leader from coming to power, this was pretty darned close. A president who abuses his authority over the law enforcement and counter-espionage entities within his government to covertly attack his successor had absolutely no precedent in American history. Barack Obama crossed a line that Jackson, Lincoln, Wilson, FDR, Nixon, or Bill Clinton never did. 
I believe that the 2008 election will go down in history as the last time America saw a peaceful transfer of power. Obama beat the feckless John McCain fair and square, and not a single Republican took to the streets, rioted, or tried to undo the results. Even in 2012, after four years of recession and national embarrassment, Obama was re-elected. And again, not a single Republican threw stones or tried to burn down buildings. Yet when Trump won in 2016, the left was unleashed. They rioted in the streets. They demanded recount after recount. They tried to pressure the electors to change their votes. They used the last few moments of power in the Obama administration to begin a bogus investigation that sought to hamstring and eventually oust the new president. They impeached him twice. Using COVID as an excuse, they changed the rules of our elections to favor themselves, eking out a close victory in 2020. This is not a conspiracy theory. They bragged about it in Time magazine. They called it fortifying the election. When President Trump refused to accept these dubious results, the media and the left attacked him and his supporters as election deniers, as if they themselves had not been denying the 2016 election for more than four years. In their unchecked zeal to maintain their own power in the face of a populist who'd connected with the forgotten men and women of America, the Democrats and their friends in the GOP establishment opened Pandora's box. Now, neither side accepts the results of any election they appear to lose, which means our Republican form of government is basically at an end. Primogeniture usually worked in the old days because it was a system that everyone could agree upon. Republicanism worked in America for nearly 250 years because all sides agreed it was a fair way for the people to pick their leaders. Free and fair elections rely on the consent of the losers, but today the losers claim they didn't really lose. No matter the reality of the election systems, the mere perception that they might be fraudulent and unfair means that the system is not working. Unless it can be fixed quickly, we face the prospect of civil war, no different than the anarchy of medieval England. We need elections that are free, fair, and transparent. If there are machines involved, they need to be open-sourced and audited. Counting the votes needs to be done quickly and fairly under the watchful eyes of trustworthy individuals of all parties. We cannot allow the Democratic Party machines in big blue cities like Atlanta and Philadelphia to run their elections without any oversight. Mail-in ballots and drop boxes must be banned and voter ID enforced at all polling places. Fixing our election systems is, perhaps along with securing the southern border and stopping the crime wave in our big cities, the most important issue of our time. If we do not secure our elections, then we are not going to have a country for much longer. Voting is already becoming a fig leaf to cover the naked will to power of our oligarchs. But we have to be smart about this. Rather than just taking whatever you might hear from Mike Lindell or others at face value, take the time to investigate your own county's voting systems. Visit your clerk's office, talk to the workers, tour the facilities. Then take that knowledge and combine it with what you learn about election vulnerabilities and share it respectfully. We need positive plans on how to fix this. Be careful about red herrings or wild goose chases. Not only do those waste time, but they make it all too easy for the enemies of free and fair elections to cast anyone interested in election integrity as crazy. Now, I know you're not crazy. I'm not crazy. We are interested in saving our elections and our country. I appreciate that, and I appreciate you watching What's Happening Gem State. I will see you next time.